there's this concept of like, oh, well, because you're still in society, you're implicitly agreeing to the contract. But there's no opt-out. But what if you could opt in to your preferred society with your preferred rules, with your preferred justice system? Hello, hello, hello. How are you all? You good? How's your weekend looking? I'm off to see Guns N' Roses tonight. It's about 30 years since the first time I saw them, which was the first concert I ever went to. And I'm going with two lads I went to that concert with 30 years ago. We will be jumping around like idiots with our arms wrapped around each other singing songs like idiots as ever. Oh, let me tell you something. Uh, very short notice. If you're in Nashville, if you're in Tennessee... We've arranged a last-minute What Bitcoin Did Live. We've got Preston Pish, Matt O'Dell for a live podcast. It's going to be on July the 11th at Bitcoin Park, which me and Danny have become members of. So please do come and join us for that. Tickets are available on whatbitcoindid.com. Just click on WBD Live. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by RS Energy, the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got Aaron Daniel back on the show. Now, I first spoke to Aaron about a year ago. It was a cracking show, and I've been meaning to get him back on for a while. And so while we're out in Miami, we made it happen. So if you haven't checked out that previous show, please do go and check that out. We're very lucky to have people like Aaron coming into the Bitcoin world and thinking about Bitcoin in a different way. And so this time we got into justice in the hyper-Bitcoinized world, looking at how courts will respond to Bitcoin disintermediating the civil justice system. So it was a fascinating show. I know you're going to love it. If you've got any questions or feedback, then please do hit me up. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Real estate market is still insane in Miami. Like everywhere in the states, you know, there was that pump after COVID and after you know the the stimmy checks. Um, but Miami is like the only city that is staying high. Uh, everywhere else is kind of like moderated a little bit with the with the rate increases. You know, mortgage rates are higher, but Miami's still still up there. It's like colleague at my firm, you know, just a few years younger than me, you know, good job. You know, we're attorneys. We, we earn a good living, um, Miami rates. Uh, and he can't, he can't buy into a house. Huh. Like he's priced out of, you know, a, an, a, a three, two family home in Miami. Well, it's, so, th- th- I mean, this is a nice place. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's cheaper for us to bring five people here than get five people a hotel room. So if we get yeah. five people hotel rooms, because you've got to give mm-hmm. each one a separate room, you're talking, what, four $500 a night for a decent hotel? Yep. And uh, and then we need to rent a studio to be able to do yeah. this. Yeah, that's a big one. And so you're talking two to $2,500 a night just on the hotel. Mm-hmm. Then put in a studio rental. If we're here for two weeks, I mean, that's... 28, uh, you're probably looking thirty five thousand, right. and so the rental of this. Anyone listening will be thinking that's crazy, but like we paid twenty eight thousand dollars for two weeks, right? Which at the time we were like, this has got out of hand. Normally <laughs> we we rent a place for ten to twelve, yeah, when we're away on a trip. Um, but it, but it is more cost effective, and mm-hmm. and you also you get the benefits of all being together. You know, we can play some pool, yeah. we can eat yeah. together, you know. So that that is an additional benefit. But it's a cost-effective way of doing mm-hmm. it. But I was trying to do the math on what this place would cost and you know, estimate. And yeah, even if you're within half a million dollars, they essentially need to rent this out a third of the year to cover their mortgage. Yeah. And so I think you have a couple of options. One, you just buy it mm-hmm. and rent it out all year. Mm-hmm. Or the second option is you furnish it, but you don't keep all your nice stuff in here. Exactly. You know, your personal stuff. Mm-hmm. And when anyone wants to rent it, you get out. Yeah. And it's mad, you know, 
I don't think hotel occupancy is down, yet Airbnb appears to have doubled the inventory and they're filling. Yeah. Well, and it's like hotels suck now too, because like the whole reason you go to a hotel is like, there's like, you know, cleaning service, the maids come through and you know, you can get everything you need. And like, I just haven't found that to be the case anymore. Like Hilton's I know were just like, yeah, we don't, we don't do maid service anymore unless you ask for it. And every time I've asked for it since the pandemic, they've never given it to me. I've never gotten my room cleaned at Hilton. So I'm putting you on blast Hilton. I'm an honors member. Um, So we, we're just like, yeah, we're just going to air, might as well Airbnb because like, if I'm going to clean up after myself, I might as well have my own place with the kitchen and cook. And, but yeah, I I mean that the investment strategy makes sense to rent out homes in Miami now because it's a desirable place to come. So the house across the street from me, you know, I live a, a few miles away. This is kind of my neighborhood. The house across the street from me, uh, is a short term rental, the house directly next to me is going to probably shift to a short-term rental. There's a whole short-term rental like complex four houses down from me, which is convenient because I don't have to like have a guest room. (laughs) I could just keep my family over there. It's nice, but it's also, this is why, you know, middle-class Miamians can't buy in a lot of these neighborhoods. And then where it's affordable, it's just very far away right? It's, uh, you know, down South, uh, homestead is still affordable. Um, you know, out, out way West, you know, basically the Everglades <laughs> is well, affordable. It brings but, another couple of issues in it. it there's a, like a new wealth divide. If you can buy properties and you can uh, rent them out and it essentially mm-hmm. pays off the mortgage. I mean, it's great for you. What a, what a pension if you're building a property portfolio or what a inheritance you're creating for your children. But in doing so, you're pushing people out who can't afford that. You're secondly, it's it's causing a lifestyle problem for the local people in that if you happen to be pushed out but you work in the city, you're yeah. essentially spending more time commuting, mm-hmm. less time away from your family. And then potentially there's less community cohesion because you know, where you live, if you're surrounded by short-term rentals, yeah. you're not getting to know your neighbors. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm, I'm not saying for or against it. It's just it just is this kind of like new paradigm, but yeah. but I, I, I'm sure we can make a fiat argument for this, <laughs> that has caused this. Yeah. Yeah, we have had this low interest environment. Mm-hmm. We have had this mass print of the money, people near the spigot that's co- created this situation, but it does have that's a right. real impact. And uh, yeah, I don't have this where I live in, in Bedford. Bedford yeah. isn't a place where people come on holiday uh, well, rarely do. So we don't now. Have they that. do now that uh, you know you're there with the the, yeah, the football team champions. Are you yeah. coming over? Uh, you know, just give me an invite. And I'll, All right. Well, I'll well we're moving the show. We're going to do a trial of hosting the show in the UK for four months from January. Okay. So if you want to come over between nice. January and April, we will bring you over. We basically worked out the cost of mm-hmm. doing this, moving the studio around the world. We can essentially pay for the guests to come to the, we wow. can make a, well, I say pay, yeah. not business, but um, we can essentially do a, um, I don't know, say $1,500 mm-hmm. credit, say here's yeah. $1,500. Yeah. And if you want to make a holiday of it, or if you want to upgrade, that's up to you. Mm-hmm. And so we can bring people to us. They come watch the football uh, and I travel less. Yeah. Well, I say travel less. It means we can focus more time on making films, which yep. we, we want to do more mm-hmm. of. But uh, anyway, we're uh, distracting ourselves, man. <laughs> Great to see you again, buddy. Good to see you. Yeah. How yeah. you been? I've been all right. I've been all right. Staying busy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you were on the show before. Yeah, about a year ago. About a year right. ago. Uh, not everyone would have listened to that. No. And you're not, <laughs> you're not out on Twitter. 
Yeah, no. Not like trying you. to game the audience. <laughs> no, I'm, not, I'm definitely not. Crowd. I'm definitely not play, playing the uh, you know growth hacking game or whatever. No, um, yeah. just remind people who you are, what you do. Yeah, so I'm Aaron Daniel. I'm a Miami-based appellate attorney. Um, so my day job, I do like civil litigation, but at the appellate level. So you lose, you got an order you want to appeal, and you bring it to me, and I take it up to the next the next court, uh, which is usually three judges. Uh, whether you're in state or federal court. I'm also a member of the Miami Bitcoiner community. Um, the BitDevs group just started a physical co-working space called Bitcoin Grove. That's the, the logo on the hat. If anybody wants a hat, you know. That, so that's more like Bitcoin Commons, Bitcoin Park. Yeah, that's the okay. idea. The idea is... Um, yeah, and it's a little, we're trying to do it very organically. So the way it came about was uh, Roz, who was leading the... Dev Socratic seminars. Um, decided we needed like a permanent space because we kept getting outbid for for you know renting out the spaces we were doing it in, um, and so you know got asked around and the place we were doing it had kind of office space upstairs that the owners were using. So uh, we've now got office space, co working space, big boardroom, private one private office, a lot of you know co working desks. Um, and yeah, it's, it's an interesting, I'll tell you, it's an interesting example. And this was Roz's idea. Uh, it was, it's an example of real world value that ordinals created. Huh? Okay. I'll tell you the story here. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. Uh, it's kind of like, uh, kind of, kind of like, uh, this, this idea of these third spaces, right? I know you had Thomas from PubKey on and he was talking about that. They're kind of seeding each other now. So Roz is uh, a collaborator with this Ordinals project called PokeSats, which is, you know, like Pokemon cards, but Bitcoin themed, uh, and they do auctions. And so PubKey had an Ordinals auction a few months ago. And one, the, one of them, the Ordinals was a PubKey card. That was the name of it. It looked like a little Pokemon that had like a key and like a monkey. So Thomas bought that for the PubKey and... That money was donated to Bitcoin Grove and was the seed money that allowed us to open our doors. So, you know, it's, it's, there's a nice synergy there. I like that. Well, so it's a really good point you've made. So something I talked about on the show recently, this awareness of uh, two things that have come together at the same time. The awareness of how much the state interferes with business. Mm-hmm. So we did an interview yesterday talking about, uh, with Nick Carter, talking about um, Choke Point, Operation Choke, yeah. Choke Point 2.0 and what happened with some of the banks. And spe- specific, not so much Silvergate, but more, was it Signature? Signature, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that yeah. was the one that really got closed down. Yeah, and how essentially it feels like the government tried to close down a yeah. business that was operational. And I've talked about, you know, in the UK, as somebody who creates businesses, how the business, how the government and the banks make things really hard. So there's two things. The, the banks make it very, very hard to open a bank account. Mm-hmm. You have to give an awful lot of information. And I have, in the time I've been doing this podcast, I've had three bank accounts closed down. Right. Uh, you were de-risked. Well, so the first one, yeah, I was de-risked. So the first one was closed down because um, I refused to tell them what uh-huh. I was spending my money on. Right. I was like, if you have suspicion, go to the police. I'll answer their questions. But I'm not telling somebody in a call center what I spend my money on. Mm-hmm. I'm an adult. 
fuck off. <laughs> I didn't say those words, but then they closed <laughs> down my account. Um, and then I had two business accounts closed down for the podcast each each time I was de-risked. Now, one of them, transfer-wise, uh, froze my account. Right. After receiving a payment from one of my sponsors, they asked for evidence. I gave the invoices, the contracts, everything, mm. even, even though I thought none of your business, but whatever. Uh, and they said, uh, we do not allow people to transfer money in and out of crypto uh, uh, exchanges to buy and sell mm. crypto. And I was like... I didn't. They are a sponsor sponsoring me, and they said, right. "We don't care. We're, we're still freezing your account." They actually froze my money. Mm. Now, if that freeze had happened over the end of a month, say on the twenty eighth, yeah. I would not have been able to pay yeah. my staff. Yeah, yeah. It was midweek, and I managed to get it unfrozen very quickly. And the only reason it was is I called them out on Twitter, and somebody got in touch and said, "You basically you don't want to fuck this guy off." Right. And I'm not flexing. I'm just saying you don't want no, to. You can cause problems. They unfroze my money. Yeah. But that's continued to happen. Now, this is, I operate a legitimate business. Mm-hmm. I have conversations. I sell sponsorships to regulated companies. Like, it's a legit, yeah. legitimate yeah. business. They're making business hard. So that's, that's the first point. But I've become, I've become reticent to say this because I've always kind of said, <laughs> I think libertarian positions are naive, but I feel a very strong draw to the libertarians yeah. now because of the size of the state and what it does. So I was explaining this to my son is that I've worked, we've worked so hard this last six years. Last year was the first year I had a little bit of money at the end mm-hmm. and I was able to buy another business, mm-hmm. which was a bar. And now that bar is growing and I've increased everyone's wages and I realized I'm quite good at investing and running businesses. Right. I think I do a better job than the government mm-hmm. taxing me and redistributing it. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting to this point. Sorry, this is a long explanation, <laughs> but it's important. So I've, I've come to this point that I've, I've like, I should have realized a long time ago uh-huh. that actually I do a better job than you. Leave my money alone and yeah. let me operate. Mm-hmm. The great thing about Bitcoin is what I'm seeing is, is every four years, most people's net wealth is increasing. Mm-hmm. And then what they're doing is doing really cool things with it. Yeah. They are opening up a pub Mm -hmm. in New York Mm -hmm. and running Bitcoin meetups. They're opening up a workspace here. They're opening up, uh, 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 they've got a surfing thing in El Salvador. There's a football team in Bedford. Everyone is doing it, taking their money and doing more productive and great things. Well, like that's that's what you're supposed to be able to do with your money, right? Exactly. Isn't that, isn't, that, <laughs> isn't that the whole point? <laughs> and it's happening. Like, yeah. I am I am so here for this. Yeah, it it is great. It, it, it's it, and it is a community. You know, like you've said before, you if you if you build a business that might not be just a, you know a Bitcoin business, but integrates Bitcoin, you've got an audience there. You know, you've got a community. You know, right now. You know, we we might disagree on things, but we all agree that you know, as Bitcoiners, Bitcoin's where we want to focus our energy and put our wealth. You know, to varying degrees, right? Um, so it's just it's cool that you've got that ability now, and it's not like a hack. I mean, kind of is a hack, right? You know, open a Bitcoin business and you've got you know a built-in customer base already. Um, but it, I think it is just that natural, you know, economic engine. Uh, that Bitcoin provides as as good sound money, uh, and that's that's great to see. It is definitely a hack. Mm-hmm. A Bitcoin business is definitely a hack. Yeah. This football team, without Bitcoin, mm-hmm. doesn't get promoted last year. Yep, it is maybe a mid-table team that is trying to get people through the door. Mm-hmm. But it's a Bitcoin team, so it gets access to very large global sponsors exactly. who want to access the listeners of mm-hmm. a show, which there are millions, mm-hmm. 
and it has people flying from the, around the world to come see the team. If you come over, yeah, you're going to come at a time we play. You're going to come to the game and you're going to love it. And so it's absolutely hack. We we are essentially operating at the same level of teams in the national league, which mm-hmm. are five divisions above us oh, economically. Wow. Yeah. Um, but we're, we're, we're five divisions below. Yeah. So it's totally <laughs> a hack. And you've almost got this, like, uh, you've got this kind of organic migrating community. Mm-hmm. I can come to Miami. I can call you up. I can exactly. call up Shay. Say, exactly. what's going on? Yeah. You're like, there's a meetup yeah, here. Yeah, Shay can, runs the meetups here. Yeah. yeah, you can come to, he's a great guy, by the way. Yeah, he's uh, amazing. You can, we've got an event here, or if you need someone to work, come here. If you want to record a podcast, come here. Exactly. We can go to New York. We've got the same with um, Thomas. We can go to mm-hmm. uh, Nashville. We've got the same with those guys. Go to El yeah. Salvador. You guys can come to Bedford and do the same. It's like these nodes that are extending exactly. out. I'm totally here for this now. Yeah, it, it is great that, yeah, we've just, so now in Miami, Bitcoiners come hang out at Bitcoin Grove. Uh, we've, we've got room for you, space for you. We'd love to see you. We had a lot of great events over the course of conference week. We have like a pleb day during industry day, uh, where folks, it was open, you know, calendar, put, you know, put your name on the calendar, talk about whatever you want, projects that you find interesting that you're working on. We had a lot of great presentations. Um, we also hosted the awards for the plebfi hackathon. Did you hear about that? No, tell me. Yeah, PlebFi is something um, Jeremy Rubin and I think Andrew Yang is his name put together a couple of years ago. Um, and it's, you know, just developer focused, you know, very, re- you know, it was like 10 bucks or something to, to go and you have seminars all day long. And it was like the same people who were presenting at the big conference, you know, like Rob Hamilton was there with Miniscript and, you know, so we had a Noster track and Ordinals track at, at PlebFi. Uh, and it was, you know, a small group, eh, it was maybe like 50, 50 developers and then like lurkers like me who aren't developers. Um, and then after a day of seminars about these different topics, it was a hackathon, 24 hour hackathon. And there were about, I think eight teams. Um, and I mean, the stuff that these teams came up with in such a short amount of time, uh, was, so the, the winning one is really cool. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this for, for the work I'm doing and we're going to talk about later. It's a Noster escrow system called Celebrity Escrow. And the, the, con, the conceit of it was, you know, you're on Noster. Everyone knows you're in pub. They can plug in your in pub as the escrow agent and then plug in an amount of sats. If there's a dispute between me and Danny, you know, we put in our, our Noster keys and Bitcoin address to, to hold the funds if we're going to bet on, you know, if the Heat are going to win the NBA finals. And then when, when the event happens and we have a disagreement and one of us isn't paying out, then we can DM you on Noster. Be, hey, by the way, you don't know this, but you're our escrow agent and you're going to act as the oracle and release the funds. And if you do, you'll, you'll, you'll get a fee. And so then you can sign a message that's broadcast on Noster, I believe, that will then release the funds one way or the other. Can I steal the funds? No. No. We can go halves though if you give it me. No. That's fair. <laughs> so, but this this is, a, you know, an escrow system, you know, and, and they did a good job of kind of marketing. It's a funny, funny yeah, idea, yeah. but replace, replace you with like, you know, a, an arbitration center, mm-hmm. you know? And now the arbitration center is is the Oracle attesting to a decision. The attestation is a decision over a dispute that will automatically 
release funds between two disputants. So it's available. We can test this now. Yeah, just go to, I think it's celebrityescrow.org and you can play with it. I don't think it's fully, fully, uh, you know, all the kinks aren't worked out, but uh, you, yeah, you can go check it out. So what are we going to test on? Whether the Heat are going to win the finals? Yeah. Are they going to get past Boston? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think so at this point. We were there last night. <laughs> yeah, how, how was it? It was the exact opposite of the game on Sunday. Mm. Game on Sunday, Boston couldn't... I mean, I might use crap terminology here because <laughs> I'm not a basketball guy. Yeah. But uh, Boston couldn't, couldn't finish. Yeah. Yeah, they weren't getting their three points. Mm-hmm. The crowd was loud and hostile. They yeah. were rattled. And then... Um, he couldn't miss. Who was the fifty-five, the tall guy? Do you know that? Do you know the players? I, I got to be honest. I don't. Uh, basketball is not really my sport. <laughs> <laughs> but last last night was the exact opposite. Boston yeah. couldn't miss, and uh, uh, they defended well. Boston mm-hmm. and um, he just missed a lot of chances. It was yeah, almost the exact opposite game. Uh, they need three, what three more wins? Just one, isn't it? Just one. No, yeah. Boston need three more. Yeah, yeah. I'd go. Right. I've got to go Boston. I'm Irish. Half Irish. <laughs> Are you? Okay. There yeah. You. I'm not yeah. Cuban. No. <laughs> anyway. Okay. So that sounds cool. Okay. Well, that, that yeah. should lead us on to what we're going to talk about. Exactly. So yeah. you're working on a paper. Yes. So I'm working on a paper uh, for a series called the Satoshi Papers. Um, and this is a, an initiative by the Texas Bitcoin Foundation. That's Natalie Smolinski. Amazing person. Uh, she's great. Isn't she yeah, incredible? I, I got to meet her and, and hang out with her in person over the conference um, and, and really had a great time. And uh, Tour de Meester is the other editor wow. of this. That's um, a powerhouse. Yeah. So I get to work with them on a, on a research paper that's going to be peer-reviewed. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about it. It's been a great process so far. Natalie's my new favorite person in Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, we've done three interviews now with her, yeah. two solo mm-hmm. One with Gladstein, and uh, she just blows my mind every time. Yeah. Um, her understanding of Bitcoin and the relevancy to today, mm-hmm. and also her understanding of the history of the US and yeah. democracy and you know, uh, geopolitics, mm-hmm. all of that together. She's she's such an easy person to interview. Um, yeah, right. She's fans. very good at explaining complex topics and and you know integrating all these different seemingly disparate topics. And she's working on a sense. new book, which she told us about. That's exciting. I think she said it on the show, so we're not revealing it. <laughs> yeah, I, we'll have to make sure this goes yeah, out make sure. show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, so you're working on this paper. Yeah, yeah, and and there's a bunch of authors and, and the series is basically looking at Bitcoin, society and Bitcoin, and how Bitcoin's gonna affect society. So you've got philosophers, philosophy professors writing. I think Ovik Roy is also, you've had him on your yeah, show, Yeah, right? Ovik's amazing. He's, he's writing a paper, uh, I'm not sure his topic, but yeah, economics, and I'm kind of like, the token lawyer going to talk about legal stuff. Um, well, I think everyone on that list is a token something, <laughs> but that's a great group of people to work with. I love the work uh, FreeOp does. Have yeah. you met Ovik? Yeah. 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 I, I met him over the conference. Yeah. Yeah. I love the work they do. Um, he was in our most recent film. Again, another fascinating guy. Mm-hmm. It's this transition we've had over the last four years from the kind of, there's this like wave of macro uh, uh, macro experts, philosophers, lawyers, yeah. accountants, uh, yeah, human rights people. This mm-hmm. wave of people that have come in has been incredible. And it's now, what I found super interesting is that 
when I first kind of probably got into Bitcoin, it was like this ragtag group of cypherpunks mm-hmm. and degen gamblers and hardcore Bitcoiners. It was cool, but now it's Bitcoin's grown so much. There's a lot of people coming in and, and kind of thinking about the real world application of Bitcoin, what it actually means yeah. for every part of society. And I think it's just so fascinating. Right. Everybody comes into Bitcoin and brings their experience uh, and their expertise, whatever it whatever it is, you know, whether you're a lawyer, really good at cutting mangoes, you know, everybody brings their, by the way, I'm really good at cutting mangoes. So that's, that's like one of my specialties. Yeah. What's the, what's the trick with mangoes? (laughs) They're just, they got a really thick skin. So you gotta, you know, use a sharp knife and I don't like mangoes. Yeah. You don't like mangoes? No. I like pineapples. Aaron just brought us some mangoes. I I did bring some organic mangoes from my house. Well, let's try some. Maybe it's different here. (laughs) Maybe it's different from the college. No, I don't eat mangoes that you buy at the store. Oh, right. No, They're different. No. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is homegrown, organic, no, no, uh, GMO here. We're going to be is... uh, judging how you cut these mangoes, Connor. Yeah. I'll... If you cut. No. Oh, you're going to show us. <laughs> show us how you cut Do a you mango. Have a sharp knife? Oh, here we go. He's already okay. getting excuses yeah, bring, in. Bring a mango over here. All right. Let's have a... This is a, a first for yeah. what we're going This did. is the first time. <laughs> We've had pineapples and pears, but never had a mango. Yeah. All right. Here we All go. Right, so the trick is... <clears throat> you got to cut the, the top off first. Yeah, right. a bit of effort. Right. And then you got to... Please don't cut yourself. Yeah. And you got to kind of peel it like an apple, like this. You right. are good at cutting mangoes. Yeah. And now here's the trick, too. Mangoes are part of the sumac family. Mm-hmm. So if you are allergic to poison sumac and you get the... Uh, you have mango that has any of the skin left on it, you can have a bad reaction. Huh. So is anyone allergic to poison sumac? I'd never Do even you heard have of it. poison sumac in the UK. I don't know what that is. Never even heard of it. Then this will be an this will be a test. <laughs> this is not how I would cut a mango. That that's no, what I'm I would saying. cut it in half. This is you gotta be you can't cut it in half. Then you gotta go through the stone. There's a pit. I would have I would have yeah. probably tried to cut it more like a pine. I cut a so pineapple. You, you, you peel it like that. And then you got to kind of just cut it around the the pit. Yeah, I would I would have cut it more like a pineapple. I find pineapple cutting annoying. I waste a lot. And you can get a little extra. I think I'm better. You this. think you can cut this better than him? <laughs> Wait, Danny's Danny's coming for your mango He's crown. He's coming for my mango crown, dude. We should have a uh, a, a race. All right, there's mango a extra on there, but uh, all right, let's try this. There you go. Fire collapse and. I don't know if this is one of Pretty good. Right. Yeah. Not doing it for you? No, no, it's nice. But. Yeah, go in there and grab that. Grab that big bite there. Yeah. 10 years ago. Mm. Oh, no chance Connor would have been eating this. His uh, taste buds have. Yeah. All right. Changed. My problem with mangoes, they're not sweet enough. They're a little bit almost vegetable Now, that's really interesting because mango connoisseurs. Uh, also agree that this this varietal of mango I have is not quite as sweet hmm. as I see you've got some mangoes next door that are growing. I think those are probably sweeter. Those are those are bigger. It, the taste changes as you chew through it. It's a bit kind yeah. of vegetable at first. Yeah. And then it goes through. Yeah, it's very fibrous. That'll do, Con. Just go grab one of those. Yeah. It's very fibrous. Hmm. You can make a good my wife makes a really good mango cheesecake. You can wow. puree it up and yeah. but kind of a deep mango fried. chutney. Yeah. Connor had deep fried cheesecake last night from what was it? Man versus Man versus Chips. <laughs> Fuck me, we had some terrible food. 
All right, so you're working on this paper. So I'm working on this paper, uh, and the paper is, uh, you know, when Danny and I were talking about what to call this episode, I think I might just change the name of the paper to this, the Justice uh, in a Hyper-Bitcoinized World. Okay. Uh, and thinking through the uh, externalities that Bitcoin is going to create on the legal system. And also thinking about ways that we can plug in dispute resolution systems into Bitcoin natively to perhaps uh, improve rule of law in parts of the world that don't currently have it. This show is brought to you by Wasabi, who I am using to keep my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi is the easiest way for you to send and receive Bitcoin privately. And even for non-technical people like me, it is effortless and it provides privacy by default. With Wasabi, there is no minimum amount, so you can start coin joining straight away. And Wasabi users make coin join transactions together with BTC Pay and Trezor users, and BTC Pay server users can make payments in coin join, which saves on fees and is a privacy improvement. Also, Wasabi have just dropped a new feature. Now, Trezor Suite users can make coin joins directly on the hardware wallet, which is obviously very cool. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W A S A. B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Next up today, we have BitCasino. Now, BitCasino was established in 2013 and is the world's first licensed Bitcoin casino. It is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, and they not only have cutting-edge security, but they offer fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. BitCasino also has over 2,800 games and tournaments for you to try out. And with their 24-7 live chat support, you can always get help if needed. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up today, we have Unchained. Now, events at exchanges and traditional banks over the last year have been an important reminder of how critical it is for you to take control of your private keys. But listen, I know for some of you, this can be daunting, which is why our friends at Unchained offer a personalized concierge onboarding service. Now, I've personally been through the process and I've now set up the vaults for my football team, Rail Bedford. And okay, I've got a personal recommendation here. The multi-sig solution which Unchained have created is so easy to use. They also ship you the required devices and walk you through this step by step so you understand exactly how the vaults work. After you set up, Unchained continues to provide you with regular support to help you get comfortable with controlling your keys. Now, if you've been putting off taking control of your Bitcoin wealth, Unchained's concierge onboarding is a simple way to get started. So book your onboarding today at unchained.com forward slash what Bitcoin did, which is U-N-C-H-A-I-N-E-D dot com forward slash what Bitcoin did. And at the checkout, you can get $50 off with the promo code what Bitcoin did. Also today, we have Incogni. Now, data breaches happen all the time, and data brokers collect your personal information and or sell it to other companies with just a few clicks of the mouse. Incogni helps you take control of your data again. They reach out to data brokers on your behalf, request your personal data removal, and deals with any objections from their side. Now, many data brokers collect your personal information again after some time, so Incogni take care that your data stays off the market by conducting repeated ongoing removals. Now, you can request your privacy in three easy steps. You create an account and tell them whose personal data they'll be removing. You grant Incogni the right to work with you, and that's it. 
They handle any objections from data brokers and keep you updated on the progress every step of the way. Now, I've just signed up and I have 60 requests now sat with data brokers to remove my details and it only cost me £75. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to incogni.com forward slash Peter and you will get a 30-day money-back guarantee. That is I-N-C-O-G-N-I.com forward slash Peter. Let's go back a step. Talk about the current system for conflict yep. resolution. Uh, obviously, you're going to tell mm-hmm. in context of the, of the US. I'll try and imagine yeah. in terms of the and, UK. And this is kind of just, but it, just speaking generally about you know developed nations and and how the civil justice systems work. It's whenever there's a dispute, uh, we reduce the harms to money a lot of times. There's there is specific performance where you force someone to do something, but largely speaking, you get a money judgment as a plaintiff, and then that defendant, the, who is now the judgment debtor, <clears throat> has to pay whatever is owed. If you as the judgment debtor don't pay, there are devices, legal devices available to the judgment creditor. Uh, and the writ of garnishment is one such device where I can take that writ of garnishment with the judgment and serve it on your bank or your custodian. And the bank has to turn over whatever assets you have to satisfy, you know, up, up to the amount of the judgment. So this is, this is how the system currently operates, the civil justice system. And it relies on intermediaries, right? Just like now you can voluntarily pay, of course, your judgment. Um, but when push comes to shove, you have to, you know, find the assets somewhere to satisfy the judgment. Um, if I know you live in a house, I can go and you know start to foreclose your house, uh, things like that. But so you've got intermediaries who are holding all your money and they are basically facilitating justice, facilitating the transfer of funds uh, to satisfy these judgments. Now, what happens when you go to a, you know, we're just gonna say a hypothetical full Bitcoin standard where we've solved, you know, scaling problems and everybody can self-custody in the entire world. Uh, Unless somebody voluntarily agrees to pay what they owe uh, on a judgment and there's no intermediary to go and enforce a judgment against. And so what, what's going to happen there? Obviously we're, I think we're always going to have intermediaries to some degree. There's going to be business reasons for them and, and people just, you know, we're seeing that now people just feel more comfortable giving their keys to, you know, somebody else to, to hold because they don't want the, the problem. But you're going to have a, a growing portion of the population that understands they have an inviolable property right for the first time in human history in Bitcoin. Uh, and they're, they're going to take custody of their own keys. So that always kind of not bothered me, but I was like, this, is, this might be a problem. Uh, for society moving forward, if we have a justice system that is that is not going to furnish uh, relief uh, to those who've been harmed in certain ways. Now, the flip side to that is, right, um, the justice system gets it wrong, and I've seen them get it wrong, and I've had clients who've had uh, gold coins seized out of lockboxes that they solely owned to satisfy husband's judgments. Um and and so having that inviolable property right is is a good thing. Hold on, didn't we talk about that last time? Yeah, yeah we probably did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's important that we have this 
this inviolable property right. But at the same time, you know, I, I like the rule of law. I, I like having a system that uh, is largely peaceful. Now it is backed by the state's monopoly on violence, and we can get into that in a little bit. But I like having a peaceful way to resolve disputes because if you don't have a peaceful way to resolve disputes, you just fall back to, you know, violent anarchy. You disperse violence uh, throughout the community. Um, so I've been thinking about this for a while, and I wrote an article uh, over a year ago. It was like one of my first articles for Bitcoin Magazine about, you know, how is the civil justice system going to react to, you know, increasing uh, self sovereignty over wealth and the inability to enforce judgments against Bitcoiners, basically. And what I realized was you're going to see decreased due process on the front end. And I'll give you an example of that in a minute. And increased coercion on the back end after a judgment. So the decreased due process, we've seen this already. We saw it in Canada um, with the truckers protest because there, there were a lot of things that happened there. One of them was the state of emergency that was declared and freezing of assets. Another thing that happened was business owners in downtown Ottawa sued the organizers of the truckers' protest in just civil court saying, you've damaged our, you've damaged our business. It was a class action lawsuit. And in Canada, there's this really awful thing called a Mariva injunction which the States doesn't have. Um, UK has it. That's where it came from. And we have a lot of awful laws and it is a pre judgment asset freeze of all of a defendant's assets to avoid dissipation during the course of the suit. So what happened was all of the, uh, you know, whatever <laughs> funds were left and, and seizable uh, were, were frozen. Uh, all the assets of the organizers and truckers were frozen who were defendants before, before evidence had even been introduced into court. Okay. So this is like, you can, a plaintiff can get this injunction to freeze someone's assets even before the defendant knows they're being sued. In fact, that's when you're supposed to do it so that the defendant doesn't have time to dissipate the assets. So this is like the, the Supreme Court of the U.S. has called this the nuclear weapon of the law. What's, the, what's that law called? This is the Mariva, M-A-R-E-V-A injunction. Uh, it's named after a case in the U.K. from the 70s. <clears throat> uh, some ship named the Mariva or something um, like that. I mean, we... We have this thing in civil lawsuit and uh, civil mm -hmm. cases. Uh, say if you if you open up a case, um, uh, say a libel case, it could be very expensive. Um, you can be required to put down a certain amount put of a, funds. Put a bond. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of a bond. They, I can't remember what they call it. They call it something else. But anyway, put down a bond. So if you lose, mm -hmm. then you the funds are there for you to pay the other person's mm -hmm. legal mm -hmm. fees. Uh, by the way, I have. a huge detest of the legal system now I, we will talk about that off camera y yes i wasn't gonna yeah <laughs> i wasn't gonna question you about that but but your experience i will say is um we're gonna go on another side here for a second but your experience is not unique unfortunately mm -hmm. it seems like your country has really has a really inefficient and poor uh, a, a justice system that has uh 
the incentives are off there. There is that uh, as well, but I also feel like it's a system that's been designed by lawyers with endless if and else statements yes. in it that allow different points to be argued, re-argued, yeah, pre-trial stuff, trial stuff, post-trial stuff, appeal, just to... And it, it, just makes things drag on yep. and on and yep. on and on to the point of being unaffordable or expensive. Whereas I think you would more likely get a better resolution if, if you said, we're going to meet on this date, we're going to be here for five days, you will both make your arguments in front of a jury of 15 people and we'll let them decide. Yeah. I, I think, you know, yeah. for me, that would be a far more affordable and better system. But I'll talk about that off... Camera. Yeah. No, but 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 the point that you're making is I, I agree with it as as an attorney, as an appellant attorney. What I'm looking at a lot of the time is procedure. Like, was this rule followed? Was it not followed? Um, and and figuring out and understanding the way that the courts operate. And actually, I've been the last six years. I've been on the Florida Bar's Appellate Court Rules Committee, and I've been vice chair for the last three years. And there, we literally are are assessing the efficiencies of the court and the trade-offs with due process and then crafting new rules for the appellate system to propose to the Supreme Court. And, you know, this is something that I know you'll appreciate. Last month, I was arguing one of these rule amendments to the Supreme Court, and it was a rule that would allow appeals, direct appeals from orders on motions to dismiss frivolous defamation lawsuits. So in Florida, we have something called an anti-slap statute. Mm -hmm. A slap is a strategic lawsuit against public participation meant to silence folks for making statements that would be uh, protected under the First Amendment and part of the public discourse. And the problem with slap suits is that by the time you get through all of these steps and procedures as you were outlining, Pre-trial, uh, discovery. Pre-trial, discovery, uh, trial, you know, post-trial appeals. Um, you have, as a defendant, even if you vindicate yourself and win, you've really lost because you've had to pay out, you know, fees the whole time uh, to your attorneys. You know, you've got the stress. It's, it's, it, it is I'm gonna just say defending my, is chilling. Yeah, the chilling effect, which just yeah. happened recently. There's a case in the UK between Aaron Banks and I can't remember her yes. name. Yes. And uh, she rightly said this. Has yes. a ch- she made chilling. a TED talk. Yes. Right. And she got she got sued for what she was saying on the TED talk. And yeah. he appealed. And because she hadn't requested the TED talk to be taken down, that's he, I think he was awarded 1.25 million. Mm-hmm. And it has this chilling effect. We don't yes. have First Amendment protection in the UK. But the main point I would be making is that most people who are going to be sued uh, in this kind of scenario will not have the money to Correct. do this. Um, yeah, my litigation is still ongoing. There was an appeal on the 15th against the judgment. We'll wait and see. What I can say is, like, it's close It's close to bankrupt me. Yep. Like, I'm fine because I've got a business and my lawyers are very patient. We're being paid. But the fees are, are just astronomical. Yeah, more than a million pounds. Now... Yeah, I've been supported by some people and I've paid a lot myself, but it's... So this is a systemic issue with the judicial system. And things like like what I was talking about, allowing this amendment would have allowed appeal from uh, an early determination in a slap suit that it's a frivolous suit. You can 
basically in Florida, if someone sues you for defamation, you can ask for like an expedited determination that it's a frivolous suit and get a dismissal. But if but if it's wrong and and you it's not dismissed, there's a, there's actually no way to appeal that until the end of the case, <laughs> in which case it doesn't matter anyways, right? So we were trying to, you know, a, a, as a committee, allow appeals. Um, but 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 that's just a band aid to the systemic issue, which is it's really expensive, it's really burdensome to litigate. Uh, we tell most of our clients to just settle. It's not worth the. It's not worth hiring us. It's really bad business strategy, but it's really not worth hiring us. <laughs> you should just settle and take your lumps. And, and not all people will do that. No, Some no. law firms will recognize that they know they have somebody who, once they're in, are trapped. Yes. And they will eventually spend all their money on it. Yes. And it's. I think it can be quite the... Yeah, quite the revenue channel for some blue it's, it's a, it goes back to incentives. It's a broken incentive structure. Yes. The legal system has broken incentives. We, we are, as attorneys, and this goes back to just what's happening in, you know, with fiat, we have growing inequality. It's harder and harder. You know, we're raising our rates um, to, to try to keep up with inflation and the loss of value in our money and the growing costs. And if you're at some of these bigger firms, you've got pressure uh, to bring in clients. You've got pressure, um, you know, to keep generating revenue because uh, they'll take it out of you know your hide at the end of the day if you don't. Uh, it's not the way we practice. We're much more collaborative, uh, and but but that that is the incentive structure in most larger firms. The, and the other issue is when you are recommending that people settle, mm -hmm. this then becomes uh, comparable to extortion. It does. And, and there is no, there is no incentive for an attorney to suggest settlement. There are studies that have shown that basically um, you've got just as good a chance of reaching an amicable agreement and a settlement at the very outset of the case before any evidence is even out. Like, like the settlement outcomes are about the same if you mediate then is if you mediate after all discovery and evidence is out. Because what a lot of attorneys say is they say, well, we need to see all the evidence. We need to get through discovery. We need to you know, really make our arguments so that we can present those. But it's not about the arguments. It's not about the evidence. It's not about discovery. It's about you know, what's motivating you in this dispute. What's motivating me? And can we find some common ground in between? And that's not going to change necessarily when you get through all of that litigation. Also, you've got everybody stuck, you know, if I've already paid $250,000 to my attorney to get to, you know, this post-evidence mediation, like now I have sunk costs. It's, also, but if you loot, if you stop and you give up, you are then liable for the other- And then you can be, the other yes. The team's legal fees. Yeah, in the States, that's not the default. It's opposite, but functionally there's a bunch of different fee shifting statutes and contracts often have fee shifting statutes in them. And so, yeah, that's, that's where, where we're at. It's, it's against our interests as attorneys to suggest settlement. And that's, those are, that's a broken incentive structure. Well, that's why you know, I we have, to we have fiduciary duties to our clients. We're, we, we have to look out for our clients' best interests and put their interest over ours. But, but that's why but we don't get paid if we do that. I struggle to call it a justice system. Yeah. 
probably be better, be better calling it the legal industrial complex. <laughs> it, 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 it is. Or and the litigation industrial complex. And a lot of yeah. this becomes then a war of attrition. It is a war of attrition. And going back to the growing inequality, what it means is you've got kind of stratified access to justice. I think I was looking at some studies. It's like 80% of Americans in low-income brackets, and I don't know what exactly the studies quantified that as, basically just don't have access to legal services. They can't afford it, right? And so maybe they can go to you know their local pro bono sites and get access. But And even in the middle class in America, it's anywhere between 40 and 60% also can't afford legal services. Um, that's a problem. That's a, that's a real big problem that, um, another study that I saw from like 2021 said that like Americans, it was something like 60% of Americans in the last four years had had a legal issue. And of those legal issues, only 49% had been resolved by the time of the survey. So you've got, you know, basically litigation in the court system becomes the battleground of the elite. And then everyone else is down here at the bottom. Now, here's the thing, though. Of all those legal issues that, you know, middle class and, and uh, low-income folks are experiencing, there's like, there was a study out of uh, uh, England and Wales, courts of England and Wales, that like something like 80% of all the cases that come through the civil courts fall into like 12 buckets of like common life events. So what if you can create some kind of system that helps people get the services they need for those 12 life legal events? And now you've just, you know, widened that access to the courts. The problem is, in my opinion, um, the folks who are looking at doing that and creating access to justice are trying to open the court doors wider and trying to get more people into the existing institutions, the existing state court institutions. Um, but like we've just been talking about, uh, you know, the incentives are still off there. Um, not only that, but that's great for those of us in the developed world who have access to state-run courts that are mostly fair, um, mostly get it right. Uh, but what about, you know, the 54% of people globally who live under authoritarian regimes. You know, are those state courts fair? I don't know. I, I don't want to be tried in China. I don't want to be tried in Russia either. Um, Four billion people in the world live outside of the rule of law. So what are we... The state courts are not facilitating globally. State courts, state-run courts are not doing the job of creating the rule of law. They're not a solid foundation to build any kind of justice system around. I think the evidence is, is, is now clear on that. So then that's what I'm, that's what I'm looking at in, in my paper. What system can we, or systems? Cause I think what's going to happen is you're going to have lots of communities. You're going to have online communities, you're going to have, you know, local communities that are all going to be able to privately resolve their disputes amongst themselves. Uh, and the way we get there is by anchoring 
dispute resolution systems like online dispute resolution software into Bitcoin, like I was talking about with celebrity escrow. What if we replace the escrow agent with a private arbitration system that would then attest to the decision one way or the other after reviewing all the evidence and release the funds? So you want to disrupt the legal system? You either you know, get disrupted or you're the disruptor these days. So I'd rather, I'd rather be the disruptor. This show is brought to you by Ledin. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin has a robust risk management strategy and always prioritizes safeguarding clients' assets with no DeFi yield farming. And Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only is Ledin a sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Next up, we have Ledger. Now, Ledger is the world's leader in Bitcoin security, and it's the best way for you to own and secure your private keys. If you are still holding Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be time for you to take your Bitcoin security a little more seriously, because remember, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Now, Ledger hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way for you to start managing your private keys. You can send and sign your Bitcoin transactions with full transparency in the Ledger Live app, and honestly, it couldn't be easier. I've been a Ledger customer since 2017, and I'm still using the same Nano S I bought back then. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Also today, we have Iris Energy. Now, Iris is the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. Their strategy is to target markets with low-cost excess renewable energy and they build their own highly efficient Bitcoin data centers. They are led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across renewables, infrastructure, and digital assets. And Danny and I met them recently in Canada and were super impressed with Iris Energy and their values, which align with us, so they're a great fit for what Bitcoin did and you, the listeners. Now, we are going to be working with Iris Energy on everything from the podcast to films to live events, and they're even sponsoring my football team, Rail Bedford. So we're really happy to be working with such a forward-thinking and sustainable Bitcoin mining company. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y.co. So in relation to a hyper-Bitcoinized world, mm-hmm. before we discuss how you, dis- you know, resolve dispute resolution, are you... Do you have a thesis on what that world looks like in terms of the you know, institutions that we currently have? Do we still have democracy? Do we still have uh, a, you know, a judicial system? Do we mm-hmm. still have a police force? Because- yeah, so the judicial system is going to persevere for a long time. I and mean, all, all our institutions will. The idea is that we're going to slowly uh, opt out. Um, and so if you're opting out into private dispute resolution, that doesn't necessarily shield you from being dragged into the court system, but maybe it's just over time when folks realize that it is more efficient 
uh, and you can get better outcomes, not in a state-run court, then they might just start opting out as well. And state-run courts, I'm assuming, similar to the UK, are too busy. Yeah. Things take too long. Yeah. Uh, lawsuits can take years. Yes. When you put to the courts, have a court hearing, you can be given a date that's months, maybe even a, a year later. Yes. And so a more efficient, cheaper system with net better outcomes for everyone. Yes. Um, and this is this is all... I'm not talking about the criminal aspect yes, of this. Yes, of course. Yeah. Because that's that's generally outside of my expertise. And I think that's a big that's a big bigger problem. <laughs> this is a big problem we're talking about. That's a bigger problem. And I think maybe we need to think the answer might be not replicating the current, you know, criminal justice system in you know a hyper Bitcoinized world, but totally shifting the way that we treat um, you know, those those in society who are breaking the rules, right? And moving from this kind of retributive justice, you know, eye for an eye to much more of a conciliatory justice system, you know, like the truth and reconciliation commissions in uh, South Africa were were fairly successful. Uh, Also, there was some truth and reconciliation commissions in um, Canada between uh, native peoples uh, and governments having to do with basically forced adoption of, of native children. Um, so I think that's, that's maybe in the criminal sphere, what we need to, what we need to move towards. I mean, what America is like imprisons the largest percentage of its population. 2.1 million compared to all other developed nations. Well, yeah, that itself is a system of broken incentives. I remember talking to Lynn Albrecht. Private, private prisons. Yeah, private prisons. I spoke to Lynn Albrecht. She's the mother of Russell Albrecht, and she's yeah. gone down that rabbit hole. Yeah. And she says, in some of these towns, the prison is the largest employer. And if you want to change the law, so maybe someone who dealt marijuana really probably isn't a dangerous society, is a huge cost burden to society, mm-hmm. probably shouldn't be in jail. You said the biggest people, the biggest opposing force to that will be the um, the prisons lobbying whatever, whoever group, and they will lobby against that, and they're influential and they're powerful because there's a lot of money to be made from locking people up. Yeah. And that's a completely broken system of incentives, but even on criminal prosecution, we're seeing there are broken incentives. I mean, we just, we've got a show that came out today about Roman Sterlinoff. Do you know yeah. the case? Yeah, I, I was at... Uh the conference when they when his attorneys gave their presentation yeah right and there's a broken incentives of prosecutors or mm-hmm. uh, or police people in law enforcement who maybe can end up it with jobs or side businesses yeah. which work with the likes of chain analysis mm-hmm. so yeah no direct accusation here but again another system of broken incentives i mean we we live in a world of broken incentives right now and yeah I'm reticent to just say it's it's just because it's a fiat world. I think it's almost also human nature, but it's a system, well, yeah. world of broken right. incentives, which seems to benefit those with more money against those with less money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's where we are. So, what are we what are we going to do about it? You what know, are we you going to do about we it? We can stack sats. <laughs> that's yeah. that's the first thing. Um, but then when you know. 
what what are you going to do with those sats? Are you going to be a uh, you know the the mountain man archetype? And sure, you can you know stick it all on a cold card and and go you know sit on your fifteen acre plot of land with your uh, you know your your war chest and and your war room and uh, you know your own private police force, or you can choose to live in society, right? But to do that, we do have to make trade-offs. We do have to agree to abide by a common set of rules. Now, currently, we're all kind of forced into society when we're born. And we don't really get to, you know, we, we have jurisdictional arbitrage to an extent now. You can move kind of around the world, but immigration sucks. Immigration sucks. Don't, I'm not gonna, I'm, that's another show. <laughs> and, <laughs> and again, e e easier, the more money you have. Absolutely easier, the more money you have. Um, for sure. Um, you have a little bit more jurisdictional arbitrage here in the US. Yeah, you can, you can move state to state. Yeah. That's nice. Uh, you can, you can just up and move, but again, you got, you got to have resources to do that. If, if, you're at the low end of the income bracket, it's really hard to, it's expensive to move. Mm. It's expensive to go find an apartment and put down, you know, you got to put on first last month's, you know, deposit. It's, it's not ideal. So you, you, you're forced into a society that you might've been born into and, you know, just by, by fate. And so when you talk about something like, you know, the social contract, oh, well, it's a social contract we've bestowed upon the state the monopoly on violence um, so that they can police us and so that we're not having to use violence against each other. But I didn't sign that contract. You didn't sign that contract. I mean, there's this concept of like, oh, well, because you're still in society, you're implicitly agreeing to the contract. But there's no opt-out. But there's no opt-out, right. But what if you could opt in to your preferred society with your preferred rules, with your preferred justice system? Right, so take for example Prospera in Honduras, the free city. Um, they have like a economic agreement, like an economic development zone that they're partially autonomous, um, and you know it's a, it's a city that's run by a private company, and they have a contract. If you want to go live there, you sign the contract with with the provider, and they have an arbitration center, and they say this is our arbitration provider. And, and you can go look at it. You can go look at their rules. You can go see who you know the arbitrators are there. You can say, okay, that that seems fair. It seems efficient. I don't. They, they, I don't even have to go to the courthouse. They do it all online. And so, if I have any business disputes while I'm there, that that'll be fine. But how's criminal law handled there? Criminal law, I believe, is still run by the Honduran government. Okay, I believe. I believe okay, they fine. do not have private uh, security forces. But I guess there's nothing stopping, you know, other than agreements with local jurisdictions. It yeah. says here, Prospera strengthens the Honduran legal foundation by re by reinforcing it with the American criminal legal system. Huh. Yeah. So their their arbitration center basically applies, you know, the Amer the American Arbitration Association code, and and I'm not exactly sure which commercial laws they've adopted. Um, but you can set your commercial law if you want. You know, there are standard codes for commercial law. And what if um, when you joined one of these communities, one of these communities had something like a Fetiment. I'm wearing my Fetiment shirt yeah. today. Um, and when you joined, 
the expectation or could even be part of the contract is that you're going to deposit into the mint some portion of your funds. Maybe you keep self-custody of certain Bitcoin, but now you're going to deposit some of your funds there. And those are the funds that are going to be essentially uh, at risk of loss if you get into a dispute. And you're okay with this because you know that that's going to happen. You've signed the agreement and you know that if you are harmed by somebody, you have the opportunity to have those funds transferred to you. It's like your rental deposit. Right, exactly. But you can still use your funds, right, for Mm -hmm. anything you want. It's not necessarily like a bond. And Fediment's great because on the shirt here, actually, you can see the bottom, it says the Fediment and you've got all the different modules, right? Bitcoin, eCash, Lightning, Stability pools, right? That's that's a cool one that was developed in a recent hackathon where you can make, uh, uh, you know, your stable coins through Fediment. Uh, you know, poolament for mining. What if the next one is arbitration? Your arbitration module, right? That's an interesting idea to me, and I think we're a long way from getting there, but I think we can take smaller steps and develop those dispute systems. And, and the infrastructure behind it to link it into the Bitcoin network um, and, and iterate upon it as we go and maybe get up to something like the community level, right? That's that's the goal. Fediment, interesting. So the first time I sat down with Obi, big mm-hmm. shout out to Obi and everything he's doing, um, I didn't get it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think it was the, there were two things. Firstly, I, I thought the word e-cash it was a confusing word to use because mm-hmm. it was a distraction. Right, but, Alt, altcoins or something. Yeah, yeah. I was just like, what, what, is, what do you mean this e-cash mm-hmm. thing? When really it's just Bitcoin. Um, right. But the well, cl- claims on Bitcoin. Yeah, claims on Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, Digital claims. Yeah. yeah. But also the second point was the use case tend to be like, if you're out in a village and you, know, you can't custody, you could have mm-hmm. trusted members of the community. And I was like, what? Just giving up my custody? And... But what's starting to happen now, I'm starting to hear use cases that make more sense. So the one we came to in the last interview was like, say, the Bitcoin conference. What yeah. if you could go in and you can deposit within mm-hmm. the Fediment for the conference and you have an e-cash you can use the entire time you're there for buying your beers, your merch, going to events. You have full privacy of over the event right. and you can with, you know, and we have our rail bed for stand and people can pay mm-hmm. in their e-cash mm-hmm. and, you know, at the end we can withdraw ours back to Bitcoin. Like, okay, that's right. a great you example. You that Wi-Fi, like a lot of people traveling, they might not yeah. have service. Yeah, well, the, the offline payment's really cool. I, I started playing around... Um, the alpha for Fetty has been released and right. I started playing around with that and it's, you know, very rudimentary right now, but. But this is another great example. Right. And I think these examples now, better examples make, uh, help me, have mm-hmm. helped me better understand Fetty now. And, and move, yeah. So business use cases for Fetty, right? Move away from the community too. So as an example of uh, an industry that could maybe, Adopt Fediment, and the, this is what I'm going to. I talk about this in my paper. The Israeli insurance industry has a fully private dispute resolution system that the insurance companies have all opted into for, like fender bender, like auto subrogation stuff. No fender benders ever. No insurance claims from those ever end up in court in Israel. All the companies have opted into this system called Binoam. Uh, and it is a, they have private uh, arbitrators who uh, handle the different disputes. And the key is 
how, how are these decisions enforced? How is it fully private? Because even if you have an arbitration agreement and you go and you arbitrate and you get a decision, all roads end up leading back to the state court house because how are you going to enforce it if somebody reneges? You have to go get it enforced in court. So now you're back to state-run court with all the failures we've talked about, you know, state monopoly on violence, enforcing that, that decision. BinOM doesn't have that because all the insurance companies uh, have, have basically created a clearinghouse system that has access to all of their accounts. And so there's just claims, you know, being, being shifted around between, you know, funds being shifted around between the insurance companies and it, you know, settles on a monthly basis or what have you. And, you know, it's verifiable. They can verify it. And I don't think it's open source, but, you know, they can all verify what's, what's going on with their accounts and, and the decisions and the decisions are, um, some of them are public. So that Kate creates kind of precedent within this little micro judicial system. And, you know, you can rely on those to make, you know, arguments and, but, you know, nobody's actually sitting there in person. It's just, it's just a software program and, you know, evidence right. is uploaded and, you know, maybe somebody puts down like a paragraph argument and then, you know, it'll go to one arbitrator or three, if it's complicated, there's a review process, but because the system has control over the flow of funds, it is a fully private enforcement mechanism. So an industry like the insurance industry could adopt the fediment, right? And, and now everyone's got their funds in the fediment and, you know, it's probably more efficient that way than, than having, you know, monthly audits and, you know, this clearinghouse system. Um, and you can have automatically enforced decisions. Um, you know, just it, it, you're going to speed up the time between decisions by doing that, you know, obviously you built in a little bit of time for appeals and review. But it's so just an efficient system yeah. of processing claims. That's right. Arbitrating decisions and um, dispersing funds. Exactly. It sounds brilliant. It, it's exciting stuff. The question yeah. I've got with it though, well, a couple of questions. Yeah. One is like, if me and you have a dispute, mm -hmm. I'm in Australia, you're here. Yeah. We're not within the same federation mm -hmm. and I self-custody all my Bitcoin. Is that just tough? Like, what, yeah. How, how? Yeah, that's just tough. Unless we're unless we're part of some shared community that has agreed to a dispute resolution system in advance, I'm going to have to try and sue you in state court, right? right. So that that's why there's basically two main uh, features that kind of a Bitcoin native dispute resolution system is going to have, and this is kind of two features that any fully private system needs. Uh, to, to not rely on the state. You're going to need that flow of funds, control over the flow of funds, and you need a shared community with shared norms uh, and ideally, uh, you know, voluntary assent ahead of time. So Benoam, I just gave you that example. The prototypical example of this is eBay because eBay had PayPal. And so all the disputes between you know, the sellers and the buyers could just get automatically, you know, deducted from PayPal accounts and transmitted. But the PayPal the system had flaws. Mm, for sure. Twice when I was using eBay, mm -hmm. sold things. Uh, the person who bought the item 
waited till the end of the term is 60 or 90 days. And then that 60 or 90th day said I never received it. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to provide any evidence. I had evidence of being posted. Right. Um, I can't remember the details. I They definitely received the items. They had, I had the money taken from me by PayPal and dispersed back to them. I, like so, I was scammed. So yeah, of course. So what was the dispute? process like that did you did you, you did you upload your receipts to, to something was there like I, a i can't remember yeah. the details i could imagine it's probably a scenario where i didn't do some kind of signed i mm-hmm. just delivered it mm-hmm. yeah maybe it was a t-shirt or yeah. whatever something inexpensive whereby like for example connor's helping me with the e-commerce mm-hmm. for the rail bedford and when we get orders we make a decision about what delivery based on the value of the item Somebody bought one of our Satoshi 21 shirts. Yeah. There's $75. Yeah, we'll pay the extra pound, two pound for the delivery. If they're buying one $10 t-shirt, we won't. And we accept there's like a limited amount mm-hmm. of, you know, of risk. It's a bit like how um, BitRefill mm-hmm. has kind of like a risk management yeah. for zero comps. Yeah. We yeah, kind exactly. of like yeah. the acceptable loss. So I can imagine I didn't do, I just sent it. Mm-hmm. And, and and they scammed. I mean, they scammed me. Yep. I know they scammed me because the reason I know, say it was 60 or 90 days, you don't order something and on the 60th or 90th day go, I never received it. Exactly. Like within, <laughs> within four or five days. You're, you're going to be like, where is this? Certainly yeah. within a week or two, you're yeah. like, where is this? And so I got scammed because yeah. the process was broken. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Yes. So you, so you need to optimize that that process in some way to provide more, to, more process. Yeah, of right? course. Yeah. More, and to have an actual review. Um, so, so you got to iron out the kinks, you got to iron out the kinks and, and that's, you know, that's doable because what if now, and and eBay is a good example because now we're getting kind of analogs in the Bitcoin and Noster world, right? We've got these like marketplaces, these peer to peer marketplaces that are being demoed out, uh, through Noster and particularly they're, they're built on Noster, run on Noster and, you know, sell physical goods. Uh, sell digital goods, so you know whatever you want. Um, but there's no real escrow system for these marketplaces yet for large purchases, right? There's a lot of risk that's being that that, that could be better allocated amongst the the buyers and the sellers, and there's no dispute resolution mechanism uh, because. You know, if you're running, if you're deploying a peer-to-peer marketplace, ideally, as the developer who's deploying it, you want nothing to do with it after you deploy it, other than just fixing the software. <laughs> you don't actually want to be stepping into the disputes because you don't know what's you. You ideally don't want to know what's being sold, right? Um, you're just a provider of software. So, what if we can create then these dispute systems that have you know panels of folks? who, you know, can be jurors, you know, maybe take uh, jurors from the pool of buyers and sellers, right, on that marketplace. And now, you know, incentivize them in some way, maybe, you know, some fees if they participate in the, you know, the dispute moderation panels. Uh, and then they can decide on on these disputes themselves um, and, and be the that oracle that attests to, uh, which way the escrow funds should be delivered. 
Did you have a second question? Yeah, but I think you just answered it. I yeah. was going to basically ask about the... At the moment, we kind of have a separation of the power structure where you have the judge and jury. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think you've pretty much just answered that. Yeah, and that's what's, you know... I, I kind of am envisioning for each community, you know, be it an online marketplace or an actual physical location, there should be optionality, you know, just like a module on Fediment. You know, which module do I want to plug in? I want a jury of my peers. So I want the folks who are on the review panel to be my neighbors, mm -hmm. right? Or I actually want experts. I want professional arbitrators. So you can have a dispute resolution service that, you know, an Oracle service that hires experts and you can plug in and point at that Oracle to resolve your disputes and create a marketplace, right? With different options for different communities of you know, justice providers. If um, if you wanted to use the system to, yeah, you wanted to, uh, you had a civil dispute with me, but it wasn't like Honduras. We hadn't put down mm -hmm. a certain amount of money, or even in the Honduras system. I mean, yeah, how much would you have to put down to begin with? Is it ten thousand yeah. dollars? But what if the dispute's over a hundred thousand? Yeah, yeah. And in that case, it's you know, then it's kind of like, all right, well you need to deposit more because you've got this judgment. And then if you don't, then, you know, there are provisions for expulsion from the, from the community basically. And then it becomes kind of like a, it's like shaming and you're just going to be expelled from the community if you don't follow the decision. Walk right? out the gates. Yeah. Get yeah. out. I mean, this is Off the way. To the zombies. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the way it works in, in um, like Afghanistan. I've, I've, been studying up on, you know, what, what the justice systems look like there, you know, pre and post American occupation. And do, do we um, think the, Af the Afghanistani model is a good one? I don't know much about it. Well, so I'm not, like it's, it's got, well, so the one I'm thinking of is called, it's called a Jirga, which is kind of just like a tribal council, so okay. to speak. And, you know, the, the respected members of the community you know, sit and hear the discussion, what the dispute is, and everybody, it's kind of a communal aspect. Everybody from the community kind of comes around and anybody can ask questions about what's happening. And then eventually there'll be a decision, you know, amongst the elders and, and they'll give the, they'll render the decision. Now there's not great process there because if you disagree with it, you know, you might be able to make another case, but. But too, as we discussed earlier, too much process means the system can right. be gamed in other ways. That's right. Yeah, it can be who has the most expensive lawyer makes the best arguments mm -hmm. or the war of attrition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would rather have had uh, my lawsuit arbitrated by a uh, uh, a group of uh, elders yeah. <laughs> from yeah. uh, uh, from the UK where we yeah. made our arguments. I would have preferred that than the current mm -hmm. system. What What about if I just don't have the funds? What if the the, the litigation is over a hundred thousand yeah. dollars, and I only have fifty thousand, and I can't afford. Mm -hmm. Can I mediate with you? Can I? What what happens? Yeah, I mean, you could you could envision a system, kind of like just right now, where where funds are kind of just deducted periodically off of. You know, whatever deposits are over the stream. Sure, streaming, <laughs> streaming judgments. <laughs> so, so this sounds like at the moment it, it's going to work for very niche, yes, individual yes. kind of use cases. Like the insurance one makes yep. sense. The private community on Honduras, yep. 
an, uh, a, a statewide system in the US or a nationwide system in the UK is it's got a lot of flaws. It's not saying it can't yeah. grow to and, that. And again, I don't think we're going to have a, a, a nationwide system. I don't want to. <laughs> That's the problem right now is, is you know, federal government's too big. We, they, they don't have my local community's interest at heart. You know, I'm much more interested in my local village's elections because the decisions they make directly affect me. You know, disposition of village property. Are they going to, are we going to build a new rec center for my kids, like mm. the that uh, even Tallahassee, right, the, the capital of Florida, doesn't know what my com- what's best for my community. You know, maybe my community would have preferred a longer mask mandate during the pandemic. You know, let the communities decide for themselves, and let the communities decide the dispute resolution system that best works within their set of norms, right? Their mm. shared set of norms. Um, that's that's the fairest way to go about it, I think. Uh, instead of having this supranational, you know, or or transnational, you know, national level uh, dispute system, that's that's not the goal. It might also incentivize more local business because mm-hmm. you don't have to bake in a cost of like almost an insurance on. Yeah. No legal risk is for sure a huge. I mean, if you're if you're a minor right now, do you want to go to New York or do you want to go to We'll say Georgia. I was going to say Texas, but Texas in this last it's got some challenges. Got some challenges. Georgia seems to be seems to be incentivizing minors to show up there. Um, you have you have that legal risk and, and that goes along with the regulatory risk. You know how easy is it to get to get sued, uh, and and what are the you know are the laws favorable to your business? Um, have you adopted a certain set of corporate laws? Like Delaware, that are favorable. Um, that's that's um, uh, yeah, good point. Could be good for business, but so the niche, the niche that I'm focused on now, that I'm actually trying to deploy something. I've got a project I'm working on called BitResolve. You can go to GitHub.com/slash/BitResolve. Uh, it is a adjudication system for FOSS free open source bounties. Huh. Okay. Great. Yeah. So right now you've got a problem. Uh, I'm talking to developers. There's a few few problems with the way that funding happens to incentivize open source development. You know, one you've got the grant system and the sponsor system where you know Spiral is doing a lot of grants and sponsoring developers for a short period of time. Um, OpenSats is another big player that's come on the scene. Um, Brink, I think, is is another one. Um, and that's great, but you, when you have these larger entities that are doing all the funding, you have a risk of, you know, well, I mean, they are going to influence the direction of, of development. That's just a given. And, and that's not, I think they would admit that. Yeah, we'd, we'd, when we give a grant, we want them to work on Nostra. We want them to work on eCash. That's, that's why, that's what they've worked on up until now. We want to keep them working on that. So there's, there's a risk though of, of continuing centralization among funding. Um, because if I wanted to fund a project, um, I don't have the resources to review the work product that a developer creates. Like I'm not a developer myself. So all of these entities have, you know, due diligence committees and boards that actually look at the code and, and try to see if it works and if it admits their, 
you know, meets their criteria. Since I don't have that ability, I'm just going to donate to open stats. Also they're nonprofit. I get a tax write off <laughs> on that with open sats. So another incentive to donate to them and further centralize funding. I'm not ragging on open sats or anyone because they no, do no, they have a big board and they and they actually allow you to donate towards specific categories of projects, which is cool. This would um, also work for white hat hacking yeah. where there are the bounties. That's exactly it. Uh, yeah. I, I've seen it before. I don't know how um yeah, how much this happens, but yeah, the bounties, the bounty you get changes depending on the type of exploit you find. Mm -hmm. But sometimes there's disputes over. Absolutely. You know, oh, I should have had this bounty. How big I got of this, a yeah. bounty was it? How, how big of a, yeah. So this is. And it's the, the person paying the bounty is incentivized to consider it a low yes. one. But if you had a separate arbitration system. Exactly. So the, the system I've, I've put together um, is specifically for bounties. Um, it It's going to have a, a Noster bounty board. Those exist already, actually. I've, I've been playing around with them. They're pretty cool. You you basically just you know sign a post with your um, public key, and it, it'll go up there. You put all the criteria. Um, there's front ends that'll aggregate them, but also like I was looking in my uh, Noster client, just like my you know Twitter style client, and all my my bounty posts like came through there too. Right. So you know if if your client supports it, you can see all the bounties as they're coming through. The cool thing about that. Too, this that system and the system I'd like to implement is you can zap the bounties and increase the amount of of funds available to pay the developer directly. I think um, when when Nostar or Nostar, I, I feel like I need almost like a Slack version of Nostar where I can mm -hmm. separate the things I'm yeah. doing with. Like, yeah. oh, here's my kind of social media Nostar. Mm -hmm. Here's my arbitration system. Here's all these different systems I use. Yeah. I'm assuming somebody's probably working Yeah, somebody, on. You, you create a bounty for it. Yeah. And and somebody will make it, I, I promise you. Um, so so and the idea is if I'm, if I'm putting up the bounty, I'm uh, then going to put the bounty funds in escrow, in, in an escrow, let's call it a fediment. Maybe it's a discrete log contract. Mm -hmm. uh, or maybe you somehow implement the mini script system that Rob's been working on because uh, that allows for, for a type of Oracle uh, as well. Uh, so the funds are in the escrow, bounties up on the bounty board, anybody can see it, anybody can continue funding it. Now the discretion has been removed from me as the grantor. I no longer have the ability to say whether or not the bounty has been met. Uh, I can subsequently disagree with a review panel. Um, but but the discretion is out of my hands. Now the the developer has assurances uh, that when they do the work product, they can then submit it and they can submit it encrypted to through the Noster protocol to the review panel so that the grantor doesn't see the code, right? And the review panel that I have that I have envisioned is kind of like developers who are incentivized through fees to engage in this review process. Um, and you can tie, uh, you know, reputation like GitHub experience to a public key. Like it's very, it's very easy to do that now. You can, you can link your public key to a lot of different social services or social sites. And one of them is GitHub. So that, that's a way you can make sure you're getting, you know, truly experienced developers uh, to, to look at this. And you can also make sure that the developers who aren't, who are doing the review aren't the ones who are submitting the bounty, right? And they're not gaming the system. And so the, 
reviewers will basically say up or down, and then that'll release the funds one way or the other, and then they earn fees, and then there's a coordinator that coordinates who you know who's in the review panels. They'll get a fee too. Just interested about this when we were talking about it beforehand. Danny said the show we're making a show with mm-hmm. Aaron Daniels. We're going to be discussing, um, you know, how you uh, how you in a hyper Bitcoinized world, yeah. how do you ensure that people receive the funds after mm-hmm. arbitration? But I don't think that's what the show's about now. I think this is about <laughs> decentralized arbitration, yeah, and and a it. component of that is you need escrow. Yeah, but that's not the in, that's not the interesting part. That's just. That's just a tool you need to make sure the funds right. go to the right people. Exactly. The interesting part of this is you changing your decentralizing arbitration yes. and changing the incentive structures. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's that's the idea. Exactly, decentralized arbitration. Yeah, huh. I'm gonna you know in, encourage anyone, especially technical folks and developers, to to go to GitHub.com/slash/bitresolve and and look at my designs and and look at my ideas and, and comment and start creating. Because uh, I, I think I think it's something that uh, could help facilitate the open source ecosystem as a whole, but also the Bitcoin ecosystem um, and uh, and drive some efficiencies in, in the funding process. Uh, and that's, that's where I'm going to start. Uh, and then hopefully we can iterate on different communities, different arbitration models, uh, and one day get up to that that community level. That's fascinating. Yeah. Blown away. Love this. Absolutely <laughs> love this. Brilliant. Okay. Uh, anything else you want to send people to anywhere else? Uh, my newsletter is bitcoinbrief.io. Uh, I write on all, all sorts of topics. I have stuff on the First Amendment and mining recently, um, some policy stuff as well, some monetary legal history up there. Um, so, yeah. Great, check it out. Yeah. All right, man. Well, hopefully next time we'll do this in Bedford. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. All right, man. Thank you. All right, thanks. Right, come on. How good is Aaron? And as I said, if you didn't listen to the previous show I made with him, please do go and check that out. And as I said, we're very blessed to have all these amazing new people coming into Bitcoin over this last last little cycle, really. The philosophers, the legal people. You know, we even got people like Natalie Smolensky who's come in and making us think about you know, the rethink of the American Constitution. You know, as Bitcoin breaks new ground, as it becomes more a part of the mainstream, as more people adopt it, we have to think about these ideas. So we're very, very lucky, and I'm very proud to get to talk to these people. Uh, just a quick note, as I mentioned in the intro, we are putting on a live event in Nashville. It's very short notice. It's on Tuesday, the 11th of July. It will be at Bitcoin Park. Got Matt O'Dell and Preston Pish for a live podcast. If you want to come and check it out, you can grab yourself a ticket at whatbitcoindid.com. Just click on WBD Live. All right, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you've got any feedback, you know how to get me. You can hit me up, hello at whatbitcoindid.com.